If you look at the, if you were to look at the top of the book of praise for that hymn, you would see for the title, the words Te Deum. Those are the first words in a Latin hymn that has been in use in the church since the very early church, not long after the time of the apostles. And so we today are, have been singing this as we also recite regularly the Apostles' Creed in unity with the church throughout all time and across many places. And that is in fulfillment of uh, the Lord's Prayer in John 17, the verses which we will uh, have as the basis of our text this afternoon. Let's turn to our text in John chapter 17, the Gospel of John 17, verse 20 to 23. This is a prayer that the Lord Jesus makes in the hearing of his disciples on the eve of his betrayal. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can see that the very next chapter, right after Jesus finishes this prayer, begins with Jesus' betrayal by Judas, and that leads very quickly to his crucifixion in chapter 19. So this is the context in which Jesus prays this prayer in the hearing of his disciples. In Yarrow Canadian Reformed Church, where I have been serving the last number of weeks, I have been preaching through the whole chapter, uh, John 17, and so I brought this afternoon a sermon on these verses 20 to 23. Let's read God's word. Here Jesus says, I do not ask for these disciples the apostles only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Beloved in Jesus Christ, as we read through these verses just now, did you notice their theme, the theme of these verses. It's there at the beginning of verse 21, that they may all be one. It's there at the end of verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one. And again, it's there at the middle of verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. The theme of our text is the unity of God's people. And Jesus prays in these verses for the unity of the church. Now, there's many different ways that you could think about Christian unity. And maybe you have your own thoughts about where this sermon might be going this afternoon. Maybe, for example, you think I should talk about the relationship between 
the different denominations of churches. In other words, you're thinking this text is about the goal of uniting churches under a single structure of church government. Or maybe, on the other hand, you're thinking I should talk about something like how the various Canadian Reformed churches, of which this church is, to which this church is joined, that federation, that they should all share the same songbook, for example. In other words, you're thinking this text is about uniformity of practice and doctrinal emphasis between different churches, different congregations. Well, I can tell you from the start that this text isn't about having a common church order. Nor is it about all churches belonging to the same denomination and agreeing about everything. This text isn't about carbon copy or photocopied cloned Christians doing the same things the same way. Rather, it's about different, diverse Christians worshiping the same Lord and for that reason loving each other despite their differences. Despite all the things that make one Christian different from the other, there's a unity that exists between them because they belong to the same Lord, Jesus Christ, and are united in Him to each other in one spirit, as we read in Ephesians. So that by Christ's spirit within believers, their relationships with each other are shaped more and more by the fruit of the Spirit. Their relationships are shaped more and more by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This kind of unity, unity in the Spirit and in Christ, the living truth, is what our Lord prays for in this text. It's a kind of unity that must characterize not only the relationships between Christians of different groups of churches or denominations, but also the relationships among Christians within each local church and every congregation. You see, in a sense, that's where Christian unity really gets tested. Do the Christians in this congregation pursue genuine unity with one another through a common unity with Christ is the question that this text raises for us for application. Or do we sometimes rest content maybe with a lesser unity that's not rooted in the living Christ so much as it's based on sharing the same history, the same backgrounds, or doing things the same way? Those are the types of questions I invite you to consider as we look at Jesus' prayer for the unity of the Christian community, the Christian church, this afternoon. And I summarize the message with this theme. Jesus prays for the unity of the Christian community. And I choose that word community because it has right in that word unity. A community is a group that is united by something. So we'll consider in this sermon, first, the basis of a united Christian community, and second, the consequence of a united Christian community. And we'll spend the majority of our time this afternoon on the basis. In the first place, in order that believers may be one, Jesus says that he asks for them, that is, he prays for them. Look at verse 20. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That is to say, I'm not just praying for my disciples here present, I'm also praying for those who will become my disciples in the future, that all my disciples in the present and in the future may be one. And what unites the first disciples with future disciples? Well, what unites them is a common faith, a shared faith in the same person, the same Jesus, the crucified, risen, and ever-living Jesus of the Bible and history, the Jesus who right now is seated at the right hand of God in our human nature. Look again at verse 20. Jesus prays for those who will believe in him through the word of the apostles. The apostles, Jesus' first disciples, were witnesses to the fulfillment of the scriptures in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And they, this then became their message, their word to the world. That is, the gospel that the apostles proclaimed was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures which they witnessed in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, fulfilled the scriptures. To that, they are witnesses. This is the gospel that the apostles then proclaimed. And it's through this gospel, the testimony of the apostles concerning Jesus, that people come to faith in Jesus and to fellowship with him and each other. So listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1. He says, That which we as apostles have seen with our eyes and have touched with our hands, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Well, it's this fellowship of believers with the Father and the Son that Jesus now prays for in our text. Look at verse 21. Jesus prays for his disciples, both present and future, both the apostles and the church to come. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He prays, in other words, that they may be one in fellowship, just as the Father has fellowship with the Son, and as the Son has fellowship with the Father, so Jesus prays that believers also may have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Or to use another expression, Jesus prays that believers also may, that believers may have communion with the Father and the Son. He prays that in this way of communion with Father and Son, Believers may have communion with one another. Now this word communion in our everyday language perhaps is not a very common one. But you may be familiar with it from two places. The Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Supper. In the Apostles' Creed it's there in the words, I believe a holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints. In the Lord's Supper, it's there, for example, in the words, the bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Both of these are linked with what Jesus prays in our text. 
The church as communion of saints and the Lord's Supper as a meal of communion between believers and Christ. Both of these have to do with believers' union and communion with Christ and in Christ with each other. You see, the unity of the community of believers in Jesus Christ, also known as the communion of saints, this unity and community is the result of a common unity with Jesus Christ through faith. So let's sum up at this point what we learn about the basis of a united Christian community from verse 20 and 21. In the first place, we learn that Jesus himself is the basis of a united Christian community. It says Jesus in verse 20, it's those who will believe in me through the word of the apostles. It's these who are included in my prayer for unity. That teaches us that it's only through faith in Jesus that diverse men and women will be united truly in Christian community. In other words, faith in the Jesus of the Bible and history is essential for Christian unity. There's only one Christ, Jesus the Son of God and the Son of Mary, and there's no truly Christian unity apart from fellowship with Him, apart from a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that there's no, where there's no common commitment to Jesus, any unity that's achieved isn't truly Christian unity but something less. But on the other hand, where there is a common commitment to Jesus Christ, there is the basis for true Christian unity. You don't have to add things to that to have unity in Christ. You don't have to learn how to live a certain lifestyle necessarily in order to be part of that community. That may come as a result of being part of that community, but it's not a prerequisite. It's not something you have to do in order to be part of Jesus' church. So let us then seek unity with one another, brothers and sisters, on this basis. Let's remind ourselves that even if it may be a shared history that makes many of us members of this particular church, it's only the grace of God in Jesus Christ that makes any of us members of His church. And so let's show each other, grace and love, striving for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's not make much of the differences between us, but rather let's make, up, make much of the Savior who unites us. So that, in the first place, is what we learn from verse 20. Now from verse 21, we learn that the community of the Father and the Son is also the basis of a united Christian community. In the first place, Jesus, in the second place, the community of the Father and the Son. Jesus prays in verse 21 that believers may be one in us, just as the Father is in him and as he is in the Father. As we saw a little bit earlier, the language of one person being in the other signifies fellowship and communion. There's a fellowship and communion of love between the Father and the Son that Jesus praise believers may share in. And this communion of believers with the Father and the Son, their participation in the community of the Trinity, it's achieved through their union with the Son. 
And certainly this stretches our ability to comprehend with our minds. But according to our Lord's Prayer, this is at the heart of what it means for believers to belong to Jesus and his church. Too often we think of the church only in terms of what's visible to the human eye, don't we? But the church's true glory is this invisible spiritual reality of her union with Christ and her communion in the Spirit with the Father and the Son, eternal God, the blessed Trinity. And this communion in the Spirit with the Father and the Son is what Jesus prays in verse 21, may form the supernatural basis for practical unity and community among Christian believers. Believer, yes, sinner, Jesus wants you to participate in a living fellowship with the community of God in three persons, the Blessed Trinity. This is why the Father sent Jesus to the cross. This is why the Son willingly went to the cross, so that you could know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, so that you could experience eternal life. You can see that in chapter 17, verse 3. In other words, so that you could enter into the relationship of love which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have had for each other from eternity past. Let me put it as simply as I can. In Jesus, the Father loves you, believer, with the same kind of love as he has always had for his Son. A generous, overflowing love that never fails and ever abounds. And Jesus wants that love to be reflected in the community of believers. He wants the communion of love between Father and Son to be mirrored in a community of believers who love one another with the same kind of love. That's what Jesus prays for in verse 21. That Jesus, and Jesus' prayer, it will be answered, and it's being answered wherever the unity of Christians is a spiritual reality and not something that's based on something less. So let's echo Jesus' prayer ourselves. And let's seek to express the unity that we already do have in Jesus with fellow believers. Remember the love and grace that he has shown you and show one another the same grace and love. This, beloved, is how to cultivate real unity among us. We must grow together in the gospel. Our attitudes and actions towards one another need to be shaped and fueled by the deep, deep love of Jesus toward us. The vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free love of Jesus as that hymn, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus expresses. So that was Jesus' prayer in verse 20 and 21 for unity among believers. Now verse 22 and 23. Here again, in order that believers may be one, Jesus says that he's given them the Father's glory. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. The Father's name, or sorry, Jesus says that he's given believers the glory that the Father has given to him. 
And he says he's done this so that believers may be one. Well, what is the glory that Jesus is talking about here? Well, it's the glory of the Father's name, his divine character. It's this name of the Father which Jesus has manifested in the world to the people whom the Father gave him out of the world. Look at chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. And look at verse 11. Uh, the middle of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus prays in verse 11 that the Father would keep them in this name, which the Father gave him, that they may be one. The Father's name in both verse 6 and 11, and his glory in verse 22 of our text, they are closely parallel, if not the same thing. So how has Jesus manifested or revealed the Father's name and glory to believers, to the church? Well, he's done so through his exaltation on the cross of Golgotha. Because it's there that the glory of the Father's redeeming love and grace is manifested to believers. Through Jesus' suffering and death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's as believers take in this glory deep into their being, as they take it in, as they take in this glory and love of the Father displayed in the giving of His Son on Golgotha, so as they do this, that believers are knit together in love and unity with each other. You see, the gospel is where unity starts. So as in the first place, Jesus prays for the unity of believers, likewise in the second place, he declares what he himself has done for the accomplishment of that unity. He submitted himself to the suffering and humility of the cross so that believers may be delivered from the guilt and the power of sin and know God in the glory of his grace. Apart from the cross, we can only really know God in the glory of his holiness, his unapproachable holiness. But in the gospel, the glory of God's grace is revealed. In the cross, the glory of God's grace is revealed. And this was necessary for unity because this is the basis of our participation in the fellowship of the Trinity. You see, the precondition of our fellowship with God was our reconciliation with God through the cross of Christ. Our restoration to fellowship with God required that Jesus be cut off from his fellowship with the Father in our place. It was necessary that Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that we might be accepted by God and nevermore be forsaken by Him. Jesus took upon Himself the guilt of our sins so that by His death and the shedding of His blood, we might be bound to Him in a living bond of eternal fellowship by the Spirit. This is what it meant for Jesus to pray, Father, the glory that You've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
For this unity and community to become a reality, Jesus had to become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now, since Jesus accomplished this by his death on the cross, therefore the foundation is laid for believers to reach perfect unity. Jesus prays for this in the middle of verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Now that prayer won't be answered in its fullness until Jesus comes back. But let us pray and strive to be always moving closer toward that goal of perfect unity. Let's not grow lukewarm in our efforts toward unity. Let's rather repent of the pride and self-centeredness that stands in the way of unity with our brothers and sisters. Let's call to mind the self-sacrifice of Jesus for our sake and show that same self-denying love to our brother and sister. What would be the consequence if this were the spirit of love and unity that prevailed in this Christian church here in this place? Well, let's consider the consequence for which Jesus prays in our text now very briefly as we close. Just moments earlier, Jesus prayed that the Father would so preserve and sanctify the apostles that they might remain steadfast and effective in their witness to the gospel. That was Jesus' prayer for the, the apostles. The means was the apostles' preservation and consecration. And the goal was that their fearless and faithful proclamation of the gospel in the midst of their goal, the, sorry, the goal was their fearless and faithful proclamation of the gospel in the midst of a hostile world. You can see that in the verses before our text. So in verse 15, uh, at the end of verse 15, Jesus prays, Keep them, preserve them from the evil one. And then in verse 17, he prays, sanctify them in the truth. And then, so that, those are the, that's the means, and then the goal. What's the goal of it? Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, the apostles, into the world. In other words, he sent them as the apostles of the gospel, to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, it's this same gospel, the same goal of gospel witness that now shapes Jesus' petitions in our text for the unity of his people. That is to say, Jesus' prayer for Christian unity has an evangelistic aim. The unity of Christians with one another will enhance the credibility of their testimony to the gospel in the world. You see this evangelistic aim of Jesus' prayer in the last lines of verse 21 and verse 23. End of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The end of verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Well, here's what this teaches us teaches us that the unity or disunity of Christians with one another will either help 
or it will hinder the credibility of our witness to the gospel in the world. Just think of it. Imagine if a visitor comes to a church and learns that in this church, everyone has to dress the same, talk the same, act the same, etc. If one wants to be welcomed into this group, what kind of message does this send? Does it send the message that in this church there's something going on that's radically different from the world with all its various cliques? How about this alternate scenario? A visitor comes to a church and sees all kinds of diversity among the members. There's rich and poor, Jew and Greek, slave and free, people from every status of society, people from different cultures, Jews and Greeks. There's people who raise their hands and worship and people who keep them by their sides. People who shout out an amen and people who take in the message in attentive silence. People who clap their hands and sway to the music and people whose only movement maybe is a slight tapping of the foot. Different people, different cultural backgrounds. Suppose a visitor comes to a church and sees all this kind of diversity and yet he notices that there's something that everyone there has in common. There's something intangible that unites these people together despite their differences. Won't you want to know that what that something is? And if she pursues her curiosity, what do you think she'll find that something is? She'll find that it's not something, but it's someone whose name is Jesus Christ. And she'll find that what truly unites these people is their common reception of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They love Jesus. In the words of Jesus' prayer, she'll come to know that God sent Jesus because he loved them, even as he loved Jesus. With a generous, free, deep love. And that's the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son so that whoever will believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life, which is to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So may we here in this congregation pursue that type of unity with each other. Not a unity that's rooted in a common history and a way of doing things, but a unity that's rooted in the gospel of grace. The gospel of done. Not doing, but done. It is finished. You don't have to do something to be welcomed into this church because this church is about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, may the unity that we have in Christ be brought to ever-increasing expression so that the world, our neighborhoods, our city, our country may know and believe that in Jesus God really has provided the answer to our deepest human longings for love and belonging. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this prayer of your Son, for our unity, for the unity 
also this congregation of believers. And we thank you that our Savior not only prayed for our unity, but that he also did everything necessary to accomplish this unity. Because the unity for which our Savior prayed is a unity that required atonement for sins. It required that sinners be reconciled with a holy and just God. And thus it required that your Son be exalted on the cross and raised to glory as our substitute and representative to bring us once more into the fellowship for which you once created us, to glorify you and enjoy you forever as your image bearers. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you restore us to this fellowship with you, that you renew us in the image of Christ, your perfect image bearer, so that more and more we may reflect in our relationships with one another the perfect unity and community of love which has always existed in the triune fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. Grant, O Lord, that this fruit of the gospel which Christ has purchased by his blood may be poured out richly by your Holy Spirit on this congregation as you work the fruit of your Spirit in our hearts and lives. Help each one of us to be zealous and eager to maintain and promote the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as your word commands us in Ephesians. That speaking the truth in love, we as members of Christ's body may grow in unity and community with one another as we grow in union and communion with Christ, our head, the head of his body, the church. Finally, Father, we do pray that as we learn to love one another for Christ's sake, despite our differences, that we in this church may also be a light of hope shining into the darkness of this city, and its neighborhoods, that the consequence of our unity may be that this world may see in the life and love of this church and know and believe in their own hearts that the solution to our deepest needs has been provided for sinners in the Son whom you sent and with whom you are well pleased. In his name we pray. Amen.